Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today we find out how the legacy of one of the most influential inventors of the last 150 years lives on in the tiny community of Sandin in southeast British Columbia. We'll get a tour of the power plant Nikola Tesla built back in 1987, the only one of his original power stations still operating anywhere. We speak with one of the foremost experts on the economies of Russia and Ukraine, Anders Oslin, about the weight of sanctions on Vladimir Putin and his inner circle, and why there are so few around Putin who could realistically stand up to him now. But first, Ukraine's top diplomat in Canada joins us to speak about the indiscriminate killing by Russia of civilians in his country, including an attack on a maternity hospital in the city of Mariupol today, and what must be done to help Ukraine win this war. I spent some time in Mariupol in 2014, a pretty small place, but half a million on the Azov Sea, mostly Russian-speaking, not far from the Russian border. We were covering the invasion of Donbass by uh, separatist rebels at that point. The city was still in firmly in Ukrainian hands, very much proud to be a Ukrainian city. Tonight it still is, but Russia continues to lay siege. Hundreds of civilians have died already. Reports are that they're burying their dead in mass graves. There's no heat, no electricity, no food, no water. And today brought new horrors, the aerial bombardment of a maternity hospital, injuring at least 17. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky says the strike trapped children and others under the rubble. This is what it sounded like in the footage. You can hear the shelling in the background as they walk through the destruction that was around them. You can hear their feet crunching on the broken objects, the debris surrounding the hospital. Well, we've been, we've spoken to world affairs commentator Michael Bosicu in the past. He's in Ukraine these days. After watching that same footage of the destruction, he described it this way. It was a very, very powerful bomb that left a huge crater, enough for perhaps two men or, or more to stand head to toe above each other. Uh, it's complete destruction. I mean, it looks like an Armageddon. Um, burnt down trees, cars on fire, all the windows blown out. It's a big, big hospital. Well, tonight, Ukraine's President Zelensky said, quote, what kind of country bombs hospitals, is afraid of hospitals, of maternity wards? What Russia did in Mariupol was beyond savagery, close quote. Ukraine is once again demanding allies do more to protect the skies above the country, of course. Today, the U.S. once again turned down an idea to provide Ukraine with MiG fighter jets via Poland. And that no-fly zone that everyone keeps asking about or talking about is still off the table. British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss today said it was for the best. The best way to help protect the skies is through anti-air weaponry, which the U.K. is now going to be supplying to Ukraine. There is no doubt about it. The sanctions against Russia are working. The arms and equipment sent to Ukraine will help. But what we're seeing is a Russian tactic used in Chechnya and Syria, destroying cities, flattening cities, and killing those who live in them, promising humanitarian corridors, then attacking people as they flee. That's how Russia fights. No rules, no honor, just indiscriminate destruction and death. How do you respond to that? We spent so many years trying not to provoke Vladimir Putin, letting him get away with quite literally mass murder. 
As my one guest tonight put it, the danger is not in action from us, but in failing to act and leaving Putin to believe a greater risk taken by him yields greater reward. So we must stand up. But how? That is the question we'll explore tonight. But first, let me bring in Ukraine's top diplomat in this country from the Ukrainian embassy in Ottawa, Chargé d'Affaires, Andrei Bukvich. Thanks for being with us tonight. Hello, Ben. How are you? Well, I mean, I was going to ask you first, because I think even just yesterday you were warning about civilian deaths in Mariupol. Uh, a young girl died of dehydration. And today we've seen something uh, even more horrific, the bombing uh, of, a, of a maternity hospital in that town. I just, what is this, what is that signal about where this Russian invasion is going? Well, um, you know, it is shocking uh, as it gets more and more evident that there is no line Russia is not ready to cross. So nuclear terrorism, cold blood fire, running families with children, indiscriminate shelling by half-ton bombs and missiles of the civilian and residential areas, thermobaric and cluster bombs. Russian use innocent people as hostages as human shield. There are numerous evidence of that. And today, Russia indeed striked from air on Mariupol again and destroyed a maternity house, hospital, children's hospitals, people, children, we are under wreckage. This is atrocity, and I just cannot imagine how one can do that. They have not just crossed the line of unacceptable relations between our states or uh, they violated UN Charter or international law. Uh, they have crossed the, the line of humanity, I guess. More than 40 children were, were killed for the last two weeks. Um, I just can't imagine. And a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues, friends, my family, my wife, uh, while watching the news from Ukraine or hearing our friends and colleagues saying about these atrocities, we, 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 we simply cannot accept that this can happen in 21st century. That while we have so sophisticated technologies, uh, we have... Uh, uh, complicated computers, machines, and we all countries building democracy and international trade. We are trying to have a progress in different areas. But then at some point, one day, decision of one man changed everything in our country. So people, it's not that people have lost their comfort or they lost their homes. They're simply uh, trying to survive. And when it comes not only to you, but to your relatives, to your kids, when you feel that you're unable to protect your family from this moving military machine, cynical, uh, indiscriminate, choosing the target, this is this frightening us. But of course, at the same time, there are, I have two feelings in my heart, and I think a lot of Ukrainians share my feelings right now. First, it's a deep sorrow and feeling of the horror and tragedy. And the, at the same time, it's a spirit to fight back and for fight for our country, fight for our identity and fight for our freedom and our choice to be a part of European family. So this is very difficult. And uh, I think a lot of, I don't know, uh, a lot of people, uh, philosophers, maybe novelists, will try to scrutinize, to reflect on, on what happened and what effect it had, not only on Ukrainians, but on, 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 on all citizens of the world. 
Mr. Bukovic, there has been over the past few weeks things that you've wanted to see, that Ukraine has wanted to see, that have then been put into place. You know, sanctions unlike we've seen in the past. Um, you know, military aid to Ukraine. But it strikes me that if there had been air defenses in place today, that it's quite possible that that bomb would not have been dropped on that hospital in Mariupol. Yes, true. And this message, President Zelensky, uh, Minister, Foreign Minister Kuleba, myself and my colleagues, diplomats all around the world, we are trying to deliver to the capitals that every hour, every day, that we do not have these fighters, jets, or at least this uh, entire air defense system, it will cost hundreds, if not thousands of lives, including children. And yes, we see that. Uh, I don't know, we, we as a diplomat, I do understand all the risks that the country that would be willing to support us with jets, fighters, or no-fly zones, or if would NATO would decide uh, to take a bolder decision in signaling Putin that he has no right to kill civilians, perhaps it would be different, but it is as it is, unfortunately. We're also asking, well, it seems that uh, at the moment, uh, it's not so gas and oil, the commodity that Russia is selling to the world. It's more about that Putin sells fear to the world. He tr tries to threaten everybody, including G7 countries, including NATO. And it seems he is quite successful so far. And I think, and uh, my colleagues think, that if uh, NATO is not ready to full-fledged war engagement, direct engagement with Russia, at least because of the values we share, I think at least part of Ukrainian territory could be protected, could be sheltered from airstrikes, from missiles, and from jets. And this part could be a Western Ukraine, nearby Poland, where now there are millions of people uh, that managed to evacuate from battlefields and who are looking shelter and protection and safety. And if Russia would go far, so far again to start bombing and shelling dead areas, so the casualties will be among civilians will be enormous, will be beyond any, any, any human imagination. If Vladimir Putin has not been sent the right signals in the past by the West that he wouldn't be allowed to get away with these things, perhaps the, the response this time has come as a surprise to him. Do you think now that there is any way back from this that involves Vladimir Putin staying in power in Russia and Ukraine remaining a whole democratic state? Uh, first of all, uh, I don't... I think uh, Putin has made uh, a critical and deeply wrong decision by attacking Ukraine. There is no single chance he can win. I'm speaking with Ukraine's top diplomat in Canada, Chargé d'Affaires, Andrei Bukvich. When we come back, what chance are there for negotiations or a negotiated peace? And how much more can Canada be doing not only to help Ukraine fight Russia, but also to help Ukraine with the humanitarian crisis that continues to balloon in that country. We'll be back.
I'm back with Ukraine's top diplomat in this country from the Ukrainian embassy in Ottawa, Chargé d'Affaires, Andrei Bukovic. Uh, Mr. Bukovic, we know there are negotiations planned between the foreign ministers of Ukraine and Russia tomorrow in Turkey. Is there any hope at all coming out of those talks, do you think? Well, uh, Foreign Minister Kuleba has already said that he uh, doesn't have much hope that the uh, negotiations will be uh, uh, very successful. But, of course, there are uh, issues that should be discussed and agreed, like humanitarian corridor, so that civilians, Ukrainian civilians who would like who are, who are desperate uh, to escape from battlefield, from Russian shellings, they need this opportunity to leave the cities and residential areas. And this is, will be number one priority for not only for uh, Ukrainian foreign minister, but also for our negotiation team uh, headed by Minister of Defense, uh, who have already had three rounds of negotiations with Russian teams. Right. We are right. trying to, to make uh, agreement with Russians on humanitarian issues. But frankly speaking, it's very difficult because uh, we have already once agreed at the second round, but they violated all, all the agreements. And once more, Russians have proved that the uh, uh, Germany uh, Bismarck was absolutely right saying that the agreements with Russians are not worth the paper they're written on, but we, because we would like to protect our citizens, we will be working on that as well. I want to tell you that we see the... I was just yes. going to ask you a quick question. Sorry to, sorry to stop you. In terms of Canada, before we get too deep, because I, I realize yeah. those negotiations probably won't be very fruitful. We just keep looking to see if something will develop. What are you telling Canada right now about what you need, what Ukraine needs from us? Uh, we, first of all, Ukrainian people, and uh, on behalf of Ukrainian people, I would like to thank you, not only to government of Canada, but all Canadians for the support, for practical support you are providing to Ukraine uh, in support, how you are supporting Ukrainians in their fight for the freedom. This is not only defense weapons or military equipment or food or other humanitarian uh, cargoes that the government of Canada is shipping to Poland to deliver to Ukraine. It's also uh, just Canadians I met in the street, my neighbors across uh, my house, they are uh, Canadians of, uh, they are Chinese Canadians. At uh, a couple of days after the invasion, they approach our house and uh, express their support. So we feel that, we appreciate that. And this support will definitely help Ukrainians to survive and to win. Second, uh, uh, I know that government uh, is currently is uh, working hard on facilitating the um, facilitating the procedures of how Ukrainians seeking shelter can go to ca can go to Canada or, or to uh, join uh, their relatives in Canada. Uh, the, we we have already asked Canada to give shelter to our people escaping from Russia, uh, appalling crimes. People want to come and stay with their children, parents, parents, relatives, and friends uh, for support and the sense of safety. Uh, temporarily, they will come back to Ukraine when it is safe there. 
And we, in this regard, we asked Canada to simplify the procedures for them to come to your country, uh, but do that immediately as soon as possible. One more request is to, to maximum extent to facilitate lead, uh, uh, visa procedures for the most vulnerable categories. Uh, it's uh, people with disabilities. It's, for example, kids and uh, kids with cancer who needs uh, ongoing continuation of their treatment or kids with uh, severe diseases. And we definitely would appreciate if government will take this decision fast and at least for certain categories will manage to, uh, to have something like visa-free regime. Shasha Tefer, Audrey Bukvich, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. We probably all recognize the name Tesla these days, thanks at least to the electric cars. You may also know it's named in honor of inventor Nikola Tesla. Back in 1887, having landed in New York from Europe, he invented an induction motor that ran on alternating current. Then teaming up with Westinghouse, Tesla blazed a trail, helping build the first alternating current power plant, first in Niagara Falls. Then in 1897, Nikola Tesla relocated from New York to Christina Lake in rural British Columbia for three months. He came to the region to install four of his 60 hertz generators, including one in the community of Sandin in southeastern British Columbia in the West Kootenai region. Well, today the Silversmith Power in Sandin, Silversmith Power Plant in Sandin is one of the only or is the only Nikola Tesla original power station still operating in the entire world, still using the same generator. And it is my great pleasure to welcome from Sandin, Hal Wright, owner of the family-owned Silversmith Power and Light Generating Station. Hal, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. Yeah. Hello, Dan. Uh, uh, thank you for calling. Now, I understand that you're actually about to celebrate a milestone, and you've been at, uh, at Silversmith Power and Light for an almost milestone number of years as well. Yeah, it's shocking. I, I can't believe... The time flies by like that, but I, I'm almost an artifact too. So, uh, yeah, I, I actually uh, first worked here in the summer of 1972, so it's just about 50 years ago. Tell me what it's like to go to work every day with what is essentially a piece of living history that still works. Well, I, I probably don't think about it so much every day, but when I do, uh, I, I certainly feel... That it's a privilege. I'm I'm uh, I'm working with machinery that so many hands have uh, have been working on uh, throughout its entire lifetime. And and uh, when you think of it, the, the machinery here has been generating power continuously uh, for as long as anybody on Earth has been alive, and then some. So it, it's uh, I'm just one link in the long chain of people that have been involved in in making this operation. Uh, go right from day one. Back to day one, I guess Sandin was a very different place 124 years ago. Yeah, very different than it is today, that's for sure. It was, uh, I, what I like to say to people is that it was like the Fort McMurray of 130 years ago. So it uh, was a booming mining community, and for a while it was uh, Canada's richest mining community. And the Slocan Star Mine that was the builder of this fabulous power plant, uh, that was the uh, forerunner to Silversmith, uh, they were the richest mining company in Canada at that time. So uh, Sandin evolved as a city 
in a very short period of time. It, it went from raw wilderness in the middle of the mountains at, at uh, 3,500 foot elevation. So it's doubtful that a human being had even set foot here before, really up in the middle of nowhere. And then all of a sudden, these, these incredible mineral riches, mainly silver and lead, uh, created a, an instant boomtown. And uh, and like I say, it be, became an incorporated city for for a, a period of about 20 years before the uh, ultimate decline uh, forced it to be disincorporated. But it became a, a notable place in many respects. And one of the things that was such a marvel here was the fact that it was uh, BC's first community that was lit by a power utility that would provide electricity to every citizen. So it wasn't like uh, most of the towns and cities that had developed to that stage where the electricity was was designed and built for uh, you know for example a, a streetcar system or or a factory or things like that but here in Sandon the whole city was lit and everybody could enjoy electricity it was quite a marvel tell me a bit about what tesla built and why it survives even to today. In fact, it's green to top it all off. Not only was it built 124 years ago, it's actually uh, has modern certification even. Yeah, it's it's uh, timeless in a way, and it's uh, proof that sometimes the old way of doing things isn't so bad after all. And in, in a sense, uh, from the, the green perspective, uh, what was designed and built then course they weren't thinking about green but it just happened to be uh, what meets the, the the current definition but but we're we're going to swing back to a lot of this technology or more more modern versions of it uh, again as as we address climate change and uh, change and that sort of thing um yeah so it uh the reason that this generating plant lasted uh whereas more more of the older ones were dismantled and, and ultimately disappeared uh, was the fact that uh, alternating current became the, the standard uh, type of power uh, throughout the world for, for transmission purposes. And, uh, and then here in, in uh, North America, the ultimate standard became uh, 60 hertz and alternating current. And so any equipment that was built for that um, purpose has, has really had no reason to become obsolete unless it was ultimately replaced with, with something bigger or uh, or more modern. Sandon was a, an odd place because what was built here for the most part for the mining industry and, and the uh, uh, service industries that evolved around it, uh, what was built here in the first decade typically good enough to carry on for long periods of time after that. Um, in other words, the, the boom period was right near the beginning, and then the economy slowly but surely diminished. So the old uh, power plant here was always good enough for, for all of the needs, even as, uh, as time went on and, and uh, things were modernized. And because it was in a remote location, it wasn't ever connected to the grid until recent years. And uh, so it, it just continued to do its job faithfully, and and uh, the mining companies that owned it didn't want to 
replace it or for that matter even spend money on it because really what they wanted to do was spend the money on on mining exploration and things like that that would hopefully lead to to uh, something greater so so the power plant was was kept operational and everything stayed pretty much the same and years went by and then eventually the mining here ended and in 1993 that was the last time there was any mining production here and the power plant at that point was scheduled for demolition and it was seen as redundant and uh, I was the plant manager at the time that the mining uh, shut down and so I was soon to be a plant manager without a plant and and at that point our family uh, looked at the prospects of, of uh, basically uh, bringing the plant up to uh, to a really good operating state again and, and tying it into the BC Hydro grid, and that is what we ultimately did. And in order to look toward the future, we, we decided that we should probably get the green certification as well, because that seemed to be the way that the industry was going at the time, and 1999 we got federal green certification and in fact was the first hydroelectric producer in western canada to get that certification so anyway here we are today we we had to uh, uh, do some major work on the on the water supply all of the original penstocks were built of bc douglas fir stave pipe um, 17,700 feet uh, of, of lineal pipe, and you can imagine so, what state that was in after a hundred years of of operation or more. And so that was that that, that yeah. brought me to my next question. I'm just running a bit short on time, so I didn't want to, the history of this is fascinating. But tell me what it's like to own a power plant because not many people on this planet can say they own a power plant and work there every day. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a hilarious question, and I I'm not sure quite how to answer it because I I don't generally. <laughs> think about it i uh, i can say i i arrived at this point rather accidentally i i uh when i was in my teens i thought i wanted to be an underground hard rock miner and uh, i wasn't old enough to work underground at the time you had to be 18 so anyways uh i my, I, I got my first uh job with the mining company here working on that old wooden pipeline with the uh older guys and and it, everything just kind of happened after that, you know. The, uh, it wasn't really planned, <laughs> but anyway, I <laughs> enjoy it, it. Is it fussy to work with? The, I mean, the machinery is old, right? It's the original stuff built back in, in 124 years ago. Is it? Is it? Is it temperamental? Does it need a special touch? It has its own character, and and after you've worked with it for a number of years, you get quite intimate with it and familiar. But but I can say that at uh, Westinghouse and and uh, Tesla, the genius behind Westinghouse, they they built incredible machinery. It's very user friendly. Uh, it's simple, logical, and it's you know built rock solid. And and uh, it's a pleasure to work on it because you never ever feel like you're working on something that isn't worth repairing. Whereas uh, you know, if I think of my pickup truck or something like that uh, today, I, I don't like working on that stuff because you know no matter what you do, it's not going to last. Who gets power from you? Uh, like who, who, who now gets power from your, your power plant? Well, that, that's a, a great question. We, we are the smallest of the distribution 
generation utilities in British Columbia. And uh, BC Hydro is the biggest, of course. And we yeah. power the local community, but the vast majority of our production goes into the BC Hydro system and uh, and is sold to BC Hydro and its uh, subsidiary PowerX. And the communities of Nakus, Silverton, New Denver, Rosebury, those are the communities that are are actually consuming the electricity that's generated here in Sandon. Do you ever have any power failures? I know. I mean, I suppose if if you have a power failure, people know where to find you. Well, that's true. And uh, like any utility, most of our issues will occur when the weather is rotten and there's storms and things. But our system is is pretty bulletproof, and most of our uh, power failures here are related to issues within the BC Hydro grid. So. In other words, when the grid goes down, uh, we also have to go down as well. So our, our uh, relays and circuit breakers trip, and, and we have to wait for uh, clearance from the control center to, to re-energize. So that's uh, that's something that we deal with uh, as, it, as it comes along. And every year we get struck by lightning a few times, and we, we uh, have trees down on lines, uh, not our own lines, but ones that uh, connect us to the outside world and that sort of thing. Is there any truth to the fact that you do, in fact, power a Tesla somewhere in that community? Oh, well, we we have a, a car charger that we installed here. It's free for the public. Anybody can use it, no charge. Um, bring your adapters. It's a level two charger, and we are registered on, on the uh, plug share site, so... If you happen to come up to Sandin, you can plug your car in and come and tour our plant. That's what I was going to say. The last thing I was going to ask you, if anyone's in Sandin and you feel like going to visit some original, the only original Tesla power plant still standing and the smallest one in BC, um, people can come and take a tour, right? Absolutely. And uh, in fact, from May long week- weekend right through till uh, October Thanksgiving weekend, we have a tour guide in the plant seven days a week, and the hours are typically 10 to, to 5, and uh, we've maintained that through the COVID period with the, with the uh, necessary COVID protocols. But anyway, uh, it's a great tour, and it's free, and uh, something that everybody should see. All right. It has been absolutely fascinating to hear about uh, about that small plant built so long ago by a man so famous and still standing today. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for uh, for calling. Uh, my pleasure. Well, now let's take a closer look inside the Kremlin. Russia may be a world power. It is controlled by very few people. Almost all of them born the same year, like Vladimir Putin, 1952, all from St. Petersburg. They've known each other for decades. And my next guest estimates they've siphoned hundreds of billions of dollars out of the country. It also means Putin has very few people around him who have any power to change his course. Joining me now is Dr. Anders Osland, senior fellow at Stockholm Free World Forum, author of Russia's crony capitalism from market economy to kleptocracy, and as an economic advisor to both countries in the past, one of the foremost economic experts on Russia and Ukraine. Thanks for being here tonight, Dr. Osland. My pleasure. I think one of the things that, first of all, I would be very curious to know, uh, because you've written often about uh, the Kremlin strategy of short, quick, successful wars, and Vladimir Putin's great desire to not disrupt the macroeconomic situation in Russia. And it seems in a matter of 
less than two weeks, he's managed to violate both those uh, both those longstanding trends. How have you assessed the first few weeks of this war, and what do you think has gone right or wrong for Vladimir Putin? I think that everything has gone absolutely wrong for uh, Vladimir Putin. The military performance have been absolutely substandard in every relevant uh, regard. Uh, the uh, the blatant uh, crimes against humanity that have been undertaken have been widely publicized, thanks to 300 uh, foreign journalists all of a sudden being in all over uh, U- Ukraine. And uh, uh, this has caused a massive reaction, particularly in uh, Europe, against uh, uh, Putin and his uh, uh, war of aggression in Ukraine. And therefore, the West uh, has been uh, compelled to impose massive sanctions on Russia that were far worse than uh, Putin had expected. So everything has gone wrong for him. And and yet we've always sort of uh, painted Vladimir Putin as being this master strategist, this chess player, the, the judoka. And yet it's what has gone wrong. And you've always, you've been very forthright about this. Part of the problem is that he's disconnected to some extent from what's going on in his own country or just doesn't care. Yeah, he's uh, essentially been a lucky chap who has arrived at the right time. He arrived at the late table. Uh, The Russian economy was already growing by almost 7% in 99 when he came to power, before he came to power. And... uh, then, thanks to the reforms of the 1990s and high oil price, uh, Russia had a growth rate of 7% uh, a year on average for a decade. But then, from 2009, Russia has hardly had any growth. And that's when uh, Putin has taken over with uh, renationalization and uh, <clears throat> ever more regulation in favor of his uh, own, own kleptocrats. So Putin has not been good on economics at all. And he's being praised by all of these investment bankers and Russian state banks for having uh, built up large reserves. You shouldn't have these large reserves. This is taking money away from from the people. Uh, And they have missed that Russia has not had any economic growth at all since 2014 because Putin has pursued an extreme austerity policy. So it's funny, uh, people in general complain about Germany pursuing austerity policy, but mm-hmm. they praise Putin for pursuing worse austerity uh, policies with worse economic uh, res- uh, results. What would be the impact? I mean, in your long study of Russia, the time you spent there, obviously you spent time in Ukraine as well. What would be the impact? And how surprising has the breadth and scope of the reaction to this invasion been, do you think, inside the Kremlin? I think it has been big. Uh, I've been campaigning for tougher sanctions against Russia since 2014. And uh, time and time again, we have heard from various politicians that this will be uh, sanctions from hell. And then it has been a whimper. And uh, I think that Putin uh, had, uh, didn't believe at all in Western sanctions. He said it will be as usual. They will make a lot of noise and then nothing uh, will happen. But what has happened this time is that it has become indecent to, to deal with Russia. To, uh, 
buy from Russia, to sell to Russia, and worst of all, to invest in Russia. So therefore, we have now seen 300 companies that have voluntarily withdrawn uh, from uh, the Russian uh, market. And therefore, we are likely to see a massive collapse in the Russian economy. And Putin never thought that uh, the central bank uh, reserves um, would be sanctioned or that the big Russian state banks should be uh, uh, subject to blocking uh, sanctions. And he never thought that Europe would go ahead like this. And of course, the transformation, particularly of Germany's foreign policy under Chancellor Olaf Scholz with uh, the Green Party in, in the uh, coalition government has really been amazing. So uh, I had not expected that the sanctions would go uh, so far uh, myself, although I've been pushing for much uh, tough, tougher uh, sanctions. And now it's simply difficult to do anything with Russia because it is uh, so out of it. And Putin has got into the habit uh, of uh, to lie about everything. And the same is true of Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Lavrov, and, um, and his uh, press spokesman, uh, Peskov. So people have come to the logical uh, conclusion. Uh, why bother about these people? Uh, whatever they say is a lie. Why talk to them? Speaking with Anders Osland, one of the West's foremost experts on the economies of Russia and Ukraine, uh, as well as a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum and author of Russia's Crony Capitalism from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. If, in fact, Vladimir Putin has clearly overplayed his hand here and created the circumstances of which he's been trying to avoid, seemingly, one would think, for a very long time, so a short, quick war that's worked in the past to boost his popularity, economic stability to avoid the chaos of the 90s. If he's now then sowed both these things in his own country, what next? Well, uh, that's uh, the big question. Uh, if we take the war first, uh, Putin has probably lost one quarter of the Russian military capacity in Ukraine already. And uh, Normally, it's said that you can't really continue a, a war properly when you have lost uh, more than one third. And that would be within one week. The, the Ukrainian uh, are now killing about one Russian soldier a day. So, so this is a frightful killing machine. Uh, and uh, uh, the Russian uh, soldiers are just making every mistake uh, in the book. And uh, also the hardware is uh, taken out with an amazing skill by the uh, mobilized uh, 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 Ukrainians. The Ukrainians will not give up, and Putin is not likely to give up. Putin's natural uh, reaction will be to use um, biological arms, chemical arms, and possibly nuclear arms. Uh, go ever further. And the question is, how will the West react then? We are coming to a situation like um, uh, Rwanda in uh, 1994, when too many people are just being killed too fast, so that uh, it becomes a shame uh, to, to stay uh, aside. So my sense is that the West is likely to be drawn in, 
and it can also be because of the very incompetent Russian military that can do pretty much anything. They bombed one Romanian ship in the Black Sea, an Estonian ship was sunk in, in Jessa, also in the Black Sea. So this is a very dangerous situation. And Putin is uh, clearly out of control. I think that we should co- compare him with uh, uh, Hitler in uh, uh, in Poland in 1939, uh, in what he's uh, uh, doing now. So I think that this will go very far. And what we don't know is, can anybody take him out in Russia? If it would be, it would be the Politburo, which is now called the Security Council of 13 people, Six of the, these uh, not-so-gentlemen are uh, uh, generous, four of them KGB generous. These are the people that I would look to. But obviously Putin does also. The Security Council no longer meets in person. It, uh, apart from one session Putin organized in the Kremlin, it uh, otherwise meets uh, virtually so that Putin only sees them on t- television screens in front of him. I'm speaking with Anders Aslan, the senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, one of the foremost experts in the West on both the Russian and Ukrainian economies, having served as an advisor to both those countries in the past and author of Russia's crony capitalism from market economy to kleptocracy. After this, we've been discussing Vladimir Putin and how to put pressure on him within the country. Often oligarchs are talked about, but uh, Dr. Oslin has always argued it's not the oligarchs that can pressure Vladimir Putin. In fact, it's the Security Council. We'll discuss that further after this. I'm back with Dr. Anders Osland, a fellow senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, one of the foremost experts on the Ukrainian and Russian economies, having served as an advisor to those countries, an economic advisor in the past, and author of Russia's crony capitalism from market economy to kleptocracy. Dr. Oslin, a lot has been made about the sanctions imposed on what we've been calling Vladimir Putin's inner circle of oligarchs. Uh, You've argued that, in fact, these oligarchs are essentially powerless to remove Putin, if I'm not mistaken, that, in fact, the real power lies, as you mentioned, within the Security Council. How true? Why is that? And how likely is it, as you mentioned earlier, that those closest to Putin on the Security Council would move to take him out? And under what circumstances? Uh, why they would do so is because Putin is pursuing a war about which they have probably not been consulted and which they don't support. I think that there is a general view that this is a, a mad war. Uh, the people who seem to have been involved is uh, Defense Minister Sergei Shoiko, who has been a Russian minister since 91. He's a typical yes man. And uh, the uh, chief of uh, the general staff, uh, uh, Valery Gerasimov. The, these are the two people who are uh, involved. And uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who doesn't, is not considered to have any real power, but he is the person who has agitated for Putin's uh, policy in, in the uh, uh, public. Uh, the heavy KGB generals have not said in, uh, anything. And uh, Putin uh, uh, recently uh, in Syria, in Libya, and also now in Ukraine, uses uh, uh, private contractors uh, to a considerable extent. And he also uses uh, 
uh, what is in, in fact uh, a private uh, army of uh, Chechen President Ramzan uh, Kadyrov. And these uh, groups have suffered big losses, according to the Ukrainians, 3,000 people in Ukraine. And uh, uh, the Chechen forces and the FSB hate one another. So this is one of the big rivalries. Uh, it's pretty clear that the Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, SVR, has not been consulted. And Putin, in the, the Public Security Council meeting, dressed down uh, <coughs> uh, Sergei Narishkin, who's a KGB general of high standing and head of the, the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Agency. You don't do such a thing in public. Who can stop Putin and can he be stopped before Ukraine is leveled? The four people who can stop Putin are FSB director, mm-hmm. uh, Alexander Bortnikov, mm-hmm. National Security Advisor Nikolai Patrushev, uh, 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 Foreign Intelligence uh, uh, Chief Sergei Narishkin, and uh, uh, former defense minister and uh, head of uh, FSB, uh, Sergei Ivanov. These are the four heavy KGB generals on the uh, Security Council. But uh, one reason why Putin doesn't appear in public, doesn't appear together with his top advisors, uh, and uh, wants people to sit at least 10 meters away from him, is clearly that he thinks that these people are dangerous and should not be allowed uh, to sit close to him. The only occasion recently when Putin has been seen sitting close to anybody was when he invited um, uh, a number of uh, air hostesses uh, for for a meal. Otherwise, nobody is allowed to come close to him. So he's essentially adopted a bunker mentality at this point. Um, you've outlined in your in your many writings that that Vladimir Putin does not care about the Russian people and how much they'll suffer under these economic sanctions. So, do you see uh, either a an off ramp that can be offered to Vladimir Putin, or b anyone within the country rising up uh, and and removing him before this turns into a long, protracted, and potentially um, escalating war with Ukraine and the West? The only off-ramp I see is a bullet in the forehead. That's it? That's it. And few people available to pull the trigger, I imagine. Yeah. And they will not be allowed to come close with uh, Novichok or with uh, uh, a pistol. That's a pretty die. I mean, you're a learned and, and, and sober uh, judge of these of these circumstances. That sounds like a, a hell of an assessment of what's just happened in Russia after so many years of us just kind of quietly ignoring what was going on. Yeah, but um, more broadly, uh, what breaks the regime, uh, a failed war, uh, and this will be a very failed war, uh, popular unrest uh, as a result of that and of the bad economic policies. We'll see if uh, that comes uh, uh, now, uh, it hasn't really so far. There has been some minor thing. The middle class can't do anything. Uh, intellectuals uh, can't do anything. The oligarchs uh, can't do anything. So then it comes down to the generals in the Security Council. Anders Osland, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. 